The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on August 30th, 2020, and I'm joined today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. How how are you doing, Adam? How's your how, I guess how is the end of your summer going? Because it certainly feels like it's fall out where I am. It is so cold. It's like twelve degrees outside. Yeah, it is. It's not a great uh, warm summer day today. Although I feel like yesterday was pretty good. So yeah, yeah. You never know in Edmonton. It's it probably will be winter for a couple of weeks, and then it'll be summer until October. So I'm having a great summer. Good. Oh, that's good. Good. And you've been you've been handling well the. Uh, the the COVID summer's been uh, you've adjusted well or yeah you know we've been having some uh, we've had a few little backyard hangs uh, with a few friends here and there and we even managed to get uh, get away on vacation for about four days up to Lake Louise oh good for you that's awesome were, were there many people up there yeah we went to a few of the different lakes out there like Emerald Lake and Moraine Lake and it was it was packed we didn't stay we didn't stick around in those places for very long. Yeah, you know, I've been talking to some friends from Calgary and they've been, who've been out to Kananaskis and Banff and Lake Louise a couple times or more than a couple times over the past summer because people are, you know, doing staycations and when you're in Calgary, you're so close to the mountains. Uh, and one of the comments that they've made is that there have been so many people in Kananaskis and Banff uh, over the past uh, past couple months because it's like half of Calgary goes there on the weekend because it's, uh, mm. uh, there's you know, you can't go anywhere else really. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's the the destination for Albertans, I suppose. And I, I've noticed a lot of folks that I follow are spending time also in the Waterton Lakes area. Uh, you know, I've I've always wanted to go down there. I've never I've never had a chance to go down there. We usually because we're in, when I'm in Edmonton, we usually gravitate towards Jasper, which is which is beautiful. Though this summer we haven't gone to Jasper. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd love to I'd love to go down to Waterton sometimes. That whole uh, the whole south leg of the uh, the Cowboy Trail south of calgary i'd love to explore down there before i've been down to like um uh uh what, what what's the what's the place called south of south of okotoks i want to say high highwood i don't remember anyway it's yeah. very beautiful it's very beautiful it's a very it's a very beautiful part of the province definitely and albertans certainly are taking advantage of that yes exactly uh i guess before we delve in delve into the episode um one of the things that uh that i just wanted to thank our listeners for and thank readers at dayberta.ca for was at the beginning of august i put together this alberta politics summer reading list and i solicited uh suggestions on on the, this pod in the last episode of the podcast we did at the end of july uh and on on social media and you guys came through and uh, i just want to say i was really thrilled to to get uh, get that list together you can check it out at dayberta.ca there's a whole a uh, whole long list of Alberta politics-related books um, from the 1960s all the way to the 2010s, uh, and uh, and I think there's some some really great uh, really great books. Uh, so if you want to, you know, summer's over, so it's not really a summer reading list yet anymore. But uh, uh, you know, if you wanted to to curl up around the fire uh, for uh, during during these cool fall evenings and uh, and read about Alberta politics, uh, definitely check it out. So anyway, thanks everyone for for uh for sending your suggestions they were uh they were great yeah, yeah. i really like doing that it was a great list actually i i really enjoyed going through all the recommendations we're, we're going to do something a little not different i mean we did this in the last episode as well but different for what we usually do for the podcast and that is do a bit of a, a q a episode we've got some listener questions 
to get to. But before we do that, Dave, I wanted to ask you some questions about the uh, leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada, which just wrapped up uh, after what seemed like an like an, a really long time. And and that's maybe yeah. where I want to start. Like, was this an unusually long leadership campaign? And and if it was, why was it so long? Well, I, th I think it felt long uh, because I, I believe it was initially scheduled to be done in June or July. Um, and then obviously, like everything else, it got postponed till August or postponed till later. So, so we ended up having this this thing kind of drawn out that I mean I think that I think that initially the conservative leadership race got was getting it getting attention and then COVID happened and then like everything else it kind of took sec a back seat to the kind of main narrative in, in Alberta pol or in, in Canadian politics and there were a lot of conservatives who were engaged and a lot of you know uh, a lot of conservative Canadians who were engaged but I didn't really get the impression that there were a lot of that it was really a mainstream i mean no leadership race really is but it, it wasn't really getting the attention it, it it probably would have if we weren't in the middle of a global pandemic yeah. uh because the candidates weren't out there as much campaigning in person and there wasn't as it, the stuff was being done in different ways which which makes it you know a little more challenging to uh to get the kind of visuals and the coverage that uh that uh, that a normal leadership rate might necessarily get. I mean, it, and it, 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 I mean, it was also different from the from the previous conservative leadership race in that there weren't, you know, there wasn't a, a cast of millions running for for uh, for, for the the leadership. I mean, we all we all remember back in 2017 uh, in the lead conservative leadership race to replace Stephen Harper. Um, you know, it went to the 13th ballot, and it <laughs> you know you took took day you know see it seemed like it took what you took days to get the results out. Uh, and, uh, and then eventually it was just, it was, it was, uh, it was Andrew Shear winning by a, you know, winning by a nose, you know, uh, you know, a sm very small percentage defeating Maxime Bernier. Um, I think the thing about this leadership race, I mean, th th there's a couple elements. I mean, the, the, the first thing was, it seemed like it took forever for Andrew Shear to, to, to actually leave. Uh, and, and I think that there's, there's a real lesson in that. I don't think that he really helped the conservative party by staying on as leader after the after the election where where it was very clear that the party didn't want him uh it was very clear that that he was a you know a, a lame duck leader um and i think that looking back to, to the after the 2015 election i think the conservatives were i think it was a very good choice for for prime minister harper or outgoing prime minister harper to resign right away and step aside and let his party choose a new, new leader we saw rona Am rona ambrose step in as interim leader and i think that you know she got a lot of credit um, uh, for for the work she did in in terms of of carrying the Conservative Party during that that interim period before they chose Andrew Shear and and I think that you know Andrew Shear staying on it, it didn't really I don't think it I mean it didn't help the Conservative Party it was this uh, uh, this thing that um, you know he would pop up and and you know release these kind of weird messages about Paw Patrol or bitter messages about how he's angry at the CBC or, or the mainstream media. Uh, and I, and, and, it, and it was all very much like weird inside, inside baseball. Um, and it, it culminated in that very strange uh, outgoing speech that he did, um, I guess, broadcast on, online um, during the conservative leadership race events or the evening you know where he he's he he uh he presented a very angry and bitter message <clears throat> you know it wasn't a grace it wasn't a, he didn't leave gracefully or or you know there wasn't any uh, impression that he was grateful for the party to the to his party or supporters for for uh for the position he they'd entrusted him in it was very much a uh 
a, a bitter defeated politician leaving out the door and i don't think that was a that was the right tone but now he's gone and the conservative party has a new leader i mean andrew Shear's still around he's a member of parliament and you know we'll see i think he's trying to carve him his uh carve himself out a, a you know a position as a uh you know the maybe on the on the party's right wing then we'll see what that looks like with uh with with Aaron O'Toole as party leader was he Andrew Shear is kind of an interesting guy because like you said he came in on the 13th ballot I would I'd argue he had no business winning the leadership of the Federal <laughs> Conservative Party and he was he just seemed like a wet blanket like he it was the last federal election felt like it should have been his to 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 win and the conservatives to win anyway and it's like that guy was great at snatching uh defeat from the jaws of victory so or victory from the jaws of defeat or however you say that thing he just yeah. was i just don't understand and why would he want to stick around well i mean i mean and you know under sure when he won the before he won the leadership of the conservatives he'd been the speaker of of the house of commons i think he was fairly well respective respected he was bilingual um and then he became you know the the leader of the conservative party and i mean it just it very it was very clear that he just didn't have what it took he was it was you know there was an ineptness there uh that he didn't really have what it took to um to lead the party to win a win a even a minority government i mean the party you know the conservatives won a uh, won the popular vote i mean mm -hmm. parties that win the popular vote but lose the election love to talk about that um because it doesn't mean anything in in our uh, in our first past the post uh, elect electoral system um but i mean they won the popular vote i would say largely because of the massive margins of victory they were able to run up in western canada most yeah. specifically alberta and saskatchewan where they just absolutely dominated i mean the conservatives got 70 percent of the vote in alberta which is was which uh you know i mean conservatives always get six you know between 60 and 70 percent of the vote but they actually got 70 percent of the vote which was which was on the top end of that scale so it wasn't out of range of what they usually get but but it was you know i mean it's a significant number um yeah i mean he just when you look at the last election um i mean blackface alone you know yeah. with, with prime minister trudeau not not to mention the scandals that uh, that uh, that the liberals walked into the election with i mean it, the, the conservatives it was definitely an opportunity for them but he it's just clear that andrew Shear didn't resonate the conservatives didn't didn't resonate in the places that that uh that mattered that uh i mean when i say that mattered i mean the places that um that mattered in terms of winning seats and that's mostly toronto yeah and, and so that brings up the the i guess i don't want to say issue but their new leader aaron o'toole mm -hmm. well we can talk about uh, the vote itself in a moment but in him you have a leader who sort of appeared to the uh, appealed to the right wing flank of conservatives, whereas all the reading this is what I know based on only the reading I've done. I'm not steeped in in conservative politics, so forgive me if I'm messing this up. But we're we're, we're not criminal not criminologists of Aaron O'Toole yet. Yeah. So so he, <laughs> as I understand it, was a fairly um, not a red Tory, but not a con, not a ultra conservative, and he sort of won by appealing to the right wing is that a limiting factor for the conservative party if they can't make gains in places like ontario or quebec that social conservatism seems like it may be a little bit of a uh an albatross around their necks well i mean i think you know yeah it's it's too early to tell how well aaron o'toole will do i mean he is from ontario he is from 
you know, he represents a riding, the Durham riding, which is just on the on the edge of the Greater Toronto area. So, I mean, he is a technically, a, or he is, he is a GTA um, uh, member of Parliament. One of the one of the the few. I think there's three or four Conservatives in in that area that the Liberals just just dominated in the last election. Um, social Conservatives are part of the Conservative Party, and they're not a majority of the Conservative Party, but um, they, you know, I mean, I've heard Conservative friends of mine say that, you know, in in any given leadership race or in any given um, you know, l look at a, at a party membership. Social conservatives probably represent anywhere between a quarter and a third of of the membership. So they're a significant, um, you know, a significant, very politically active um, group group within the conservatives. <coughs> excuse me, within the conservatives' uh, political tent. Um, that they supported. I mean, Aaron O'Toole didn't. From you know, from what I from what I've I observed, he didn't run on a social conservative platform. He ran on a a right wing platform. He used some of the the um i don't want to call them dog whistles because dog whistles are only are supposed to be something they're supposed to be a thing that only you know certain groups are able to hear where it's, it's pretty clear when you when you know when he when he talks about uh you know taking canada back when he talks about um you know tradition when he talks about uh, you know that that kind of stuff i mean it's not really a dog whistle as much as it's appealing to appealing to a to a to a a you know significant segment of of the conservative base. I think you mean old stock Canadians. Yeah, old stock Canadians, but also Canadians who want to. I mean, the the take Canada back slogan. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about political slogans, but um, because I mean, I think that I don't think that. I mean, I'd be surprised if that if that's the Conservative Party slogan going into the next election. I think those kind of slogans are 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 useful for internal political party. Um, internal political party campaigns mm -hmm. but more more broadly speaking i mean they're, they're going to need to appeal they're they're going to need to appeal to a, a you know a broader base of, of canadians canadians who voted for the conservatives in 2008 and 2011 but then voted for for the trudeau liberals in in 2015 and 2019 um and i i think that i mean conservatives are very motivated to to defeat uh, defeat the liberals and defeat justin trudeau um, and I would take I would take Aaron O'Toole very seriously. Um, I mean, he didn't win, you know. He he won because of the second and third place votes of Lesson Lewis and Derek Sloan, two uh, two social conservatives who both carried themselves very carried themselves very differently. Um, Derek Sloan, who you know was uh, was a very aggressive. Um, uh, and gross, I would say, ran a very gross social conservative, gross social conservative, maybe even Trumpist type campaign. Um, and Lesa Lewis, who was is a social conservative, but I mean, every time I'd heard her speak, she's you know she's she's uh, a lot less of a uh, you know smash someone over the head with her opinions and, and a little more, a little more uh, well spoken, I would say. So mm -hmm. he, I mean, Aaron O'Toole won because of those votes, but I mean, he won because those votes went to him and not Peter McKay. Yeah. So I, I mean, looking at the kind of the spectrum of you know the conservative political world. Uh, I mean, Aaron O'Toole might be the centrist in that. If Peter McKay is is the is the you know red Tory, even though I don't actually think there are any red Tories actually left in Canadian politics. I think he was just more of a moderate business conservative. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if Peter McKay is on on the left of the conservative spectrum, and Derek Sloan is you know further right than Genghis Khan. Um, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe Aaron O'Toole is like the in the, in somewhere in the closer enough to the moderate middle to kind of bridge those two gaps or bridge the conservative gap. And I mean, this is it's, it's early days, and yeah. you know we're, we're we'll have to see what his leadership style 
looks like and how he manages the kind of challenges with especially with the social conservatives in the in the federal conservative caucus um but i think that uh, i mean yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't underestimate him i think he's a very serious he seems like a very serious person he's uh you know he's a former canadian forces member he's a lawyer he's he's seems to be very well spoken um and i mean if if the next election comes around and canadians are looking for someone to you know manage the finances right and manage government in a respectable way i mean if if erin o'toole plays his, his cards right i'm you know that there's definitely could be ground could be ground to gain mm-hmm. especially after all the scandals that the liberals have been through lately with the like the we scandal and yeah you know, we'll see how much that sticks Exactly. Well, and, and, you know, O'Toole's not wasting any time going on the attack. There was a headline in the in the Toronto Star this morning where he said that all of the levers the Liberals, Liberals pulled to support Canadians through the pandemic were wrong. I haven't read the substance of the article yet, but uh, but I don't think he's going to be a, a, a shrinking violet at all. I think that he's going to be a real challenge for the Liberal Party, especially amidst all these scandals and who knows who knows how long Trudeau's going to last we'll see well yeah ex- exactly uh and i mean back to i mean taking back to the kind of alberta perspective in in uh in the case of the the conservative party leadership and inner aaron o'toole winning i mean it's no it's notable that aaron o'toole is the first um first leader of the of the conservative movement who's not from western canada since uh, I mean, maybe Brian Mulroney. I mean, this it's been a long time in terms of like the major, in terms of the, the dominant political party. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a long time since there's been a leader, a uh, conservative party leader who hasn't come from Western Canada. But I, I don't necessarily think that's something that that's going to hurt Erno Tool as much as it, as, it, as it might help him. I think conservatives in the West uh, aren't necessarily at this point preoccupied with where the leader comes from as much as like geographically, as much as can the, can uh, Aaron O'Toole actually, can Aaron O'Toole win? Yeah. Um, because it's clear that, you know, they had a leader from not, you know, I mean, Andrew Shearer, I guess is loosely from Saskatchewan, mostly, you know, <laughs> mostly from Ottawa, actually from Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, in terms of all the talk and all the bluster that we've had about Western separatism over the past, you know, almost year since the Liberals were reelected in 20, 20, um, October 2019, uh, I think we'll see some of that die down. Uh, if it looks like the Conservatives can win the next election. Because, I mean, when really when it comes down to it, yes, there are a lot of historical grievances and regional grievances. And, I mean, Canada is a country built on regional political grievances. Every region thinks they're being screwed. Um, and, uh, you know, and everyone hates Toronto. Uh, but when it when it comes down to it, I think a lot of, a lot of Albertans who have, you know, who ticked the... Uh, you know, interested or might support separatism in, in one of those polls that in any of in any, any number of those polls that have gone around over the past few months will uh, will be proud Canadians if they think that uh, that Aaron O'Toole can defeat Justin Trudeau. I think it has more to do with Justin Trudeau being in the Prime Minister's office than anything else. Is that right, eh? Yeah. Just that that person in particular. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you drive around Alberta. I mean, I, I you know, I live in uh, you know not a conservative part of Edmonton. Um, you know. Both provincially and federally, my area, my you know, my neighborhood, my area votes NDP, um, uh, and you know, it's it's not uncommon every day uh, to see to drive around the city and see uh, you know uh, an F Trudeau bumper sticker. Even there, I mean, there's still F Notley bumper stickers left over, and I'm in Edmonton. Yeah, you know, so it's so I, I think a lot of it actually has to do with Justin Trudeau for you know for all the outreach uh, and, uh, and political attention that Trudeau paid to Alberta in his first term. Um, then, I mean, there was no payout for that. There was nothing. No, 
No, nice try though. Good try. I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to our listener questions because we've got quite a few of them. And I, I suspect if people are wondering why haven't you talked about a certain thing uh, that I expected you to talk about, it's because they're addressed by these listener, quest, listener questions. So so let's start with uh, Christy uh, Gomuka on Facebook. This is her comment slash question. She says, the finance minister has already set the stage for another set of cuts. Which ministry will be target number one? Do you double down on health since you know that you have lost all political capital anyways and continue deeper cuts? Plus, it is the biggest ministry in terms of overall cost to maintain the system. Do you attempt to make more cuts to education in the midst of a pandemic? Do you continue to attack municipalities with the hopes that rural Alberta will remain loyal to the UCP? It is tough to see a path forward only focused on the spending side of a balance sheet. What do you think, Dave? Is uh, is Christy right on all fronts? All, all of the above. Um, I mean, last week, uh, Finance Minister Travis Taves uh, came out with the first quarter to debate the first quarter, full quarter fiscal update. The legislature held a one-day debate uh, on the first quarter fiscal update, which surprise, surprise. I mean, to no one's surprise, really, because the Jason, Premier Jason Kenney and, and Finance Minister Travis Taves have been talking about this for months. Uh, the deficit is above... $20 billion. The debt is almost, uh, I mean, I can think the debt is almost $100 billion. Um, this is something that, the, that they're very focused on. I mean, the, the thing, there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the first thing to recognize is that everywhere is running a huge deficit. Um, that, yeah. you know, the federal government is running a huge deficit. The province of Ontario was running a huge deficit. A lot of this has to do with, we've gone through a very tumultuous time uh, across the world in terms of of, of the economic shutdown because of the COVID-19 global pandemic. Uh, governments are spending a lot more in order to support, uh, support Canadians, support Albertans um, to get through this economic crisis. Uh, that, so that, that number one is not a surprise. In Alberta, it's a bit different because uh, a lot, I mean, a, the big source of our problem is something that is not new. It's something that has existed for 70 years is our incredible over-reliance on oil and gas revenues. Mm -hmm. um, on, on royalties from oil and gas, uh, oil and gas revenues. And uh, this is not the first time that, that, uh, that, that we've had to deal with this situation. It seems like there's a lot, I mean, this is the first time that, that, that all this stuff seems to have happened all around the same time in terms of, of COVID, in terms of the, of the, uh, of the, of the global pandemic, the economic shutdown, but the international price of oil is really, is really kicking us in the ass. And it has been for the past six years. I mean, since the fall of 2014, when the price of international price of oil, the latest time it, it flow, fell through the floor. Uh, and the Alberta government has, I feel like a broken record when I'm saying this, because I've really been talking about this for 15 years. And I mean, people smarter than me have been talking about this for a lot longer. Uh, you know, Alberta is so over-reliant, is too over-reliant on oil and gas to fund the day-to-day -day operations of government, the operations budget of government. And until we get that figured out, uh, we're not really going to get ourselves out of, out of this problem. And, you know, listening to Finance Minister Travis Taves this week, uh, it, I mean, the, the, it just, it, this government doesn't really have a plan to, to figure out the, the revenue side of the problem is they're so focused on spending. And that's what they were elected on. I mean, when they ran in, in 2019, they were, you know, they came out with a, with a plan to cut, uh, cut spending to bring down operational costs down to, you know, closer to what, you know, what other provinces are. And, you know, there's kind of weird formulas you can look at and there's a lot of cherry picking that goes on. Um, uh, the finance minister referred to the McKinnon report, which was this blue ribbon panel 
uh, of conservatives that uh, that that were appointed to look at the spending side of of the government balance sheet um, after the UCP formed government last year. Uh, and no surprise, no surprise, they came out with uh, with recommendations to privatize and to cut. Um, and it seems like this is really the you know the opportunity that uh, that gives the you know this crisis is the opportunity that gives the UCP. Um, a chance to cut even further, so they're going to, you know, this is going to be on, uh, on uh, you know, they're going to be on on hyperdrive when it comes to uh, to cutting and slashing the public service. I mean, it, you know, you're, you're going to look at spending cuts, you're going to look at uh, at layoffs, you're likely going to look at, at, at salary rollbacks uh, across the board, which is, I mean, it seems to be the opposite of pretty much where everywhere else, everywhere else is going. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, I think as part of this this fiscal update that uh, the finance minister gave revenues for post secondary exceeded royalty revenues. Mm-hmm. Is it a good idea for them to be cutting post secondary education at this point if that's their cash cow right now? Well, I mean, I I think there's a strong argument to to um, to actually double down in terms of your investment in post secondary education. I mean, now at an opportunity at at, at a point in time in in this province where uh, you know where the Traditional industry that we've relied on, that and that this government has uh, has doubled down on in terms of their support, oil and gas. I mean, now's the time to get get people back to work, get get people back to school. I mean, those jobs aren't you know so much of the of the last oil boom that that we so fondly ref, you know so fondly refer to in Alberta was a construction boom, and I mean a lot of that had to do with con- the construction big construction projects that were going on up north in Wood Buffalo and Fort McMurray, and and those projects are done and. As we've seen, there you know the big, I mean the the the, uh, the super majors, um, you know many international uh, investment firms and banks are 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 delisting and and divesting of investments and, and pledging not to invest in the oil sands because of the impacts of climate change, because of the massive carbon footprint. Um, so without those types of investment, uh, you know, and, and interest from from these big multinational companies, it's very unlikely we're going to see this kind of uh, any kind anything similar to the construction boom that we saw before. So. So instead of of kind of um, you know looking just you know resting and and looking fondly and and talking you know talking big about how how they're going to bring jobs back and and about how uh, you know how they're going to be tough defenders of oil and gas. I mean now's the time to 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 try to get Albertans to you know to go back to school to go back to college and technical school and Nate and SAIT and University of Alberta um, and get people in in uh, in classrooms and in in um, in apprenticeships uh, yeah. and and retraining and reskilling, um, you know we have a we have we have such so many advantages in this province, and and I mean one of the biggest advantages is we have such a young population, and you know despite all the economic troubles, a growing population, and uh, to not take advantage of that seems like a huge missed opportunity. But this this government seems to be going in the in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's, but, but but they have they have like one setting, and they, and they can't seem to to break from that, and it, it's quite quite frustrating to watch. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your question, Christy. Let's move on to one from Nicole Mooney on Facebook. Nicole asked, what does Adriana LaGrange's meeting with and lack of response to Jason Schilling of the Alberta Teachers Association tell us about this government's intentions for teachers and education? I mean, I think you sort of talked about it in the last question. Yeah, I mean, the so school starts. Does school start next week, is it? Uh, I think classes officially start after Labor Day, but there will be students in classrooms at at least some schools, certainly in Edmonton next week. Yeah, I, I, from what I understand, there's some some school boards are doing like a phase in, like 
certain grades go in a certain day of the week for the first week in order to transition back in. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of concern and we've seen a lot of concern from parents about uh, about the safety of returning to school and whether uh, whether school boards um, uh, are, are doing enough and whether the school boards have enough resources provided to them by the provincial government in order to, to safely uh, allow students to safely return to school. Um, so there's there's a lot of talk and a lot of concern about that. I don't think the government is really, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk, but I don't think they've really done enough to really to really ease the fears of a lot of parents and mm -hmm. a lot of teachers who are returning to, I mean, obviously returning to school and having to spend, spend their days with students. Um, I thought this was very interesting. So Jason Schilling, who's president of the Alberta Teachers Association, the ATA has been very vocal in terms of, of questioning the government and, and on, uh, on this return uh, and uh, about the safety of their members. Um, there was a meeting between Jason Schilling and Education Minister Adriana Lagrange, and it seemed that, I mean, if I recall correctly, it was, uh, you know, they, 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 posed, they, they had a meeting, they posed for a photo, and it was posted on Twitter and social media, uh, and then almost immediately after the meeting, it was, I think, the, uh, the Education Minister's office released a statement saying, oh yeah, that was great, we met with the ATA, it was a, it was a, it was a productive conversation, oh, but we're just going to keep on doing what we were going to be doing, doing anyway. So I don't know whether, whether I don't know, I mean, I don't know whether the ATA actually expected to to move uh, move the education minister on it. Um, but I mean, if if you know if they have concerns, they obviously had a responsibility to meet with her if if uh, if, they, if she was willing to meet with them. But I mean, it's got to be it's got to be pretty damn frustrating for teachers right now. Yeah. Um, you know, just just all the unknowns and having to, uh, you know, having to prepare their classrooms for for this return, and you know, not only not only just teachers, but teachers and their families as well, because, you know, there's, there's so many students moving through these schools and these classrooms. And I mean, winter is coming up and that, that's, I mean, it's kind of a, a not, not directly related to this question, but in, in terms of education, in terms of, of everything in society, I don't think we've really been thinking about how, you know, at least now for the fall, you can send kids outside to go, you know, run around the field or, or do whatever, you know, whatever kind of gym class things you can do. I don't even know if you can play, you probably, you probably play dodgeball. Um, but, uh, but, but come winter, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot, a lot challenging for, uh, it's going to be very challenging for schools and for, and for society. Definitely. Definitely. I think that, uh, it's interesting that we may, maybe we're experiencing what it's like to actually have small government that doesn't involve itself. I, to say nothing of the funding that the school system is getting or not, but they're just, they're kind of leaving the school districts to figure this out on their own. It, it was kind of interesting that, uh, that, uh, the federal liberals, set aside i think it was like two billion dollars yeah. to help school systems across canada deal with this and it feels like all the province at least from my perspective all the province has done through the pandemic is is accept money from the federal government but not done anything on its own to help manage the issues surrounding social distancing and whatnot through the pandemic other than distributing yeah. masks at mcdonald's yeah, well, even, yeah, and I mean, I guess going, even going back to the, just the first question, uh, first listener question uh, about, uh, or about revenue and, and about, about the Alberta government, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the funding that the Alberta government has been receiving from the federal government is, is significant. I think it's one of the biggest sources of revenue from, from, for the provincial government right now. Um, so, you know, you the provincial government that's not stepping up uh, to deal with these issues and the feds that are stepping in to fill the gap. Um, and then of course, I mean, this, uh, this kind of truce that the, the provincial and federal governments had during COVID is in, in Alberta, at least seems to be gone because Jason Kenney, 
uh, seems to be uh, willing again to, despite all the all the federal money pouring in, um, he's uh, he's willing to uh, to whack Justin Trudeau over the head again. It seems like that's uh, that uh, that detente is uh, is over. Um, but yeah, the, the, in terms of funding from the federal government, that's something that's that that is very significant. And I, I should say that that in terms of of the return to school, the um, it's interesting to see what. Uh, what school boards are doing to to address this? I mean, I know the Edmonton Public School Board has offered uh, students the opportunity to do the first two months uh, of online learning. So that you have a, you you have the choice. From what I understand, you have a choice to students have a choice to go in and do in class learning, or they can do the first two months of class in online learning, and then they have an opportunity to renew that if they want to. So they could do. At a certain point in the in the first two months, they can have an opportunity to opt in for the second two months of mm -hmm. of online learning. If if they you know if, if they live with someone who's immunocompromised or you know or, or need to um, or uh, you know uh, see their grandparents or you know have a large family or if, if their parents just aren't comfortable sending children into into schools with thousands of kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll be an interesting fall. Some folks I've talked to work in the education system have said they expect everyone will be back at home by Thanksgiving, but uh, we will see. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, kids are germ factories. I mean, I don't. My, my kids, you know, thankfully aren't in the school system yet. But I mean, you know, when we could send my son to preschool, I mean, you know, they always had colds and stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're, they're little. I mean, you know, uh, pre pre kindergarten kids are little. You know, can be little germ factories, um, but. Uh, so I mean I can't I can't imagine you know when you think about the just just the flu or the common cold that goes through schools I can't imagine how quickly something else could go through so we'll see I mean hopefully everything's fine and every and and, and it goes and it goes well but yep. I mean you know people seem to be bracing themselves for the worst definitely well thanks for that question Nicole uh, next one is from Elise McDee and she asks was the recent cabinet shuffle what you expected so so the UCP uh, Jason Kenney recently shuffled his cabinet it was a little bit of a shuffle. Dave, who moved in and out? I know you've got an article about this on DaveBerta.ca. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, this was very much a mini cabinet shuffle. It wasn't necessarily unexpected. Uh, I think that there was an expectation that the government would not necessarily change uh, change its pace completely, but that the, but that there was a there was a need for some kind of some kind of shuffle to happen. Um, you know, we didn't see the more controversial cabinet ministers shuffled. So, Health Minister Tyler Shandro and Education Minister Adriana Lagrange. I always want to call her Adriana Lagrande. Uh, Adriana Lagrange kept her job, um, uh, kept their jobs. Uh, but, it, but there, there. I mean, there were some changes. So, the biggest one. I mean, the the, the biggest one was um, uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Casey Madu, who's the only. Uh, UCP MLA inside Edmonton city limits represents Edmonton Southwest uh, was shuffled into the or promoted into the justice ministry. Now, this was a very, I mean, it's a very interesting move, kind of unexpected. I mean, I would say unexpected because he'd caused so much controversy on the in the in the municipal affairs file. Uh, I don't think he was seen as in terms of being municipal affairs minister, which is very much, I would say, most governments treat it as a as a junior ministry. Uh, I mean, he caused a lot of trouble for the UCP government in terms of the relationship he had with uh, with municipalities, with the big city mayors, but more specifically with the rural municipalities. Now, we, I think we talked about this in, uh, briefly in the last podcast. Um, there was, has been a huge uprising from rural municipal politicians, uh, rural municipalities over the past, over the summer. Um, the In the, the previous budget, the UCP introduced changes to 
oil and gas assessment taxes, basically exempting a huge portion of tax that the rural municipalities can uh, can collect, which is a huge source of revenue for a lot of rural municipalities. So not surprisingly, they've been up in arms saying that I think in some some counties, like I think the uh, the MD of Wainwright was saying that they, they were going to have to increase personal taxes by or property taxes by 300% in order to fill the gap. So there's been a huge uprising and I'm sure rural MLAs in the UCP caucus have been hearing um, hearing it an earful from their from their their constituent um, local politicians, uh, local municipal politicians. Um, so Casey Madu was shuffled into justice. He's promoted into justice after that. And I think that he had to move because it was becoming a big political problem. I mean, that you know, if if Nahid Denshi, mayor of Calgary, or Don Iveson, mayor of Edmonton, is is pissed off at the provincial government, um, you know, despite them being the mayors of two thirds of the province of the population of the province of Alberta, it's a lot less of a, a political concern for for the United Conservative Party. But when you get the mayors of Camrose County, you know, Wheatland County. Wainwright County, uh, Knee Hills County, you know, actually speaking out, this kind of normally kind of more docile provincial or municipal politicians, you know, the kind of the 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 farm team for the conserv the dominant conservative party in the province, when they start to uh, to to really get out and start to bang the drums, uh, that's something that uh, that the UCP definitely takes notice of, and and they did, and that's why Madu was shuffled. So he was shuffled into justice, um, and Justice Minister Doug Schweitzer was shuffled into this new new ministry that's i mean it's basically a rebrand it's it's the ministry of of uh, economic development trade and tourism is now the ministry of uh jobs the economy and innovation i think or but, but not pipelines i thought it was no. jobs economy pipelines no well pipelines is the only file that they don't seem to be getting any traction or is the only file they seem to be getting some traction on um, I mean, you go back to the last election. You remember, jobs, the economy, and pipelines was that—that that was the slogan that uh, that Jason Kenney ran under. Uh, and you know, almost immediately after they formed government, you know, the economy, uh, the international price of oil tanked. Uh, so you know, there goes your economy and your jobs. Um, and then COVID happened, and you know, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> and then, and you know, but pipelines seem to be the only file that they actually can get some political traction on. Um, you know, the, this investment they made in, in Keystone XL, you know, seven, was it $1.5 billion investment and then six, I think $6 billion of, uh, of uh, interest guaranteed loans or guaranteed loan guarantees, pardon me. Um, you know, the, you know, Jason Kenney says we're broke, but all of a sudden we have $7.5 billion for a pipeline that, that, you know, that will only get built if Donald Trump gets reelected, uh, in November because Joe Biden has said he's, he would, he would quash the, quash the project. Um. So I mean, they've demonstrated their, you know, that that they've done all they can for on the on the pipeline file in terms of these three kind of three slogan promises, um, but now it's 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 a matter of them, at least convincing Albertans that they're doing that that they're seeing showing some success or seeing some success or at least trying on the on the jobs in the economy, uh, jobs in the economy uh, uh, slogan promise I guess you could call it. Um, so I mean the the rebranding of this ministry, from what I understand, it's the, it is still the exact same ministry, but uh, but now Doug Schweitzer uh, is the minister of uh, is the minister of it, and it will oversee the new uh, Invest Alberta Crown Corporation that was created, um, and uh, it seems like it's a demotion for for Schweitzer. It absolutely seems like it's a demotion for Schweitzer, but I mean I think they'll try to I think he'll he'll still get a lot of he'll try to get a lot of airtime and and uh, and he'll uh, you know try to convince people that it is that it isn't a demotion i mean the, the other interesting one so tracy allard who's the mem member of the legislature from grand prairie 
um, who is the first chairman of MLA. Uh, her and her husband own a bunch of Tim Hortons franchises. I think they own a bunch in, in Grand Prairie and um, uh, Prince, I think Prince Rupert, and then there's somewhere else where they own uh, a bunch of franchises. Um, the first term, first term MLA appointed as municipal affairs minister, actually the ninth municipal affairs minister in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you can see why it's kind of, it, you know, it, it gets frustrating for municipal politicians because every, you know, almost every year they have to, uh, you know, reintroduce themselves and, and build new relationships with the minister. And, and you know, for the large, for a large part, municipal affairs um, doesn't seem like a priority for, for most provincial governments. Um, uh, so she, she's now municipal affairs minister, um, replacing uh, replacing or succeeding Casey Madhu and Tanya Fear, who was the the minister of economic development, trade and tourism, is now shuffled to the back benches. And this is kind of a mystery about why uh, why Tanya Fear was shuffled. She's a first term MLA for Calgary Pagan in in, uh, in East Calgary, and. Um, you know, she seemed to present well. I don't think she was embarrassing for the government. Um, she was fairly low key, uh, but uh, but for whatever reason, she seems to have uh, just been been moved to the backbench. Is the first like you know real demotion of the of the of the UCP government, which is which mm -hmm. seems like seems like kind of a surprise. But I guess they needed to find somewhere to put Doug Schweitzer. So was it was it surprising? Was it expected, Dave? Were you were you thinking there'd be a bigger shuffle this go around? I didn't think there'd be a bigger shuffle. Bigger, bigger shuffle. I, I, I mean, it, it was very clear that Casey Madhu had to be moved out of municipal affairs because he was causing too many political problems where it really hurt the UCP in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I think he was—he was a fairly—he uh, was fairly tone deaf, and I think he took a uh, a very paternalistic approach to to municipal affairs that really, um, quite quite frankly, pissed off a lot of municipal leaders and specifically municipal leaders in, in rural Alberta. Um, uh, I'm not surprised to see that, you know, I mean, a lot of people were talking about, uh, Tyler Shandro or Adrian Lagrange being shuffled. I'm not surprised to see either of them not move because they're doing what, um, they're doing what, what they're, what they've been asked to do, what they've been tasked to do. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yes, Tyler Shandro is, you know, has had a, his continues, is continuing a massive fight with Alberta doctors. Um, in the middle of a global pandemic, but that's what he's been tasked to do. It's it's nothing that nothing they're doing is uh, is not what uh, what is being is not what is not expected of them. Yeah. Absolutely. So yes, the yes, it's controversial. They're doing controversial things. Um, they may be taking off a lot of people, uh, a lot of people within their, within the profession, the healthcare and education professions. Um, but this is what uh, this is what they've been tasked with. They're you know they're moving forward with with privatization. They're moving forward with you know, with job cuts, they're moving forward with, um, you know, shrinking the, the shrinking the public system at, you know, and, and, you know, especially in terms of healthcare, it just seems like this is the exact opposite time you want to, you want to shrink the, uh, or, you know, really, really cause a lot of chaos within the, the public healthcare system. But, but that's, uh, they're not wavering from that. That's, no. I mean, that's, and it was, you know, this is not unexpected. This is what uh, you know. What what anybody who was paying attention to Alberta politics and what the UPC, UCP was saying during the election and before the election, uh, you know, this is not off script. No, this is what they they're doing. What they said they would do. Yeah, and we're gonna have to pay for it. This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Taproot Edmonton, your source for curiosity-driven coverage of the city of Edmonton cultivated by the community. Taproot publishes weekly roundups on a variety of topics, including media, technology, arts, regional news, 
business, and city council in Edmonton. Taproot's curators gather up the headlines and happenings on these files and deliver them to your inbox. You can get one or two for free, and if you want more, you become a Taproot member. Then you can get as many as you want, plus other perks for just $10 a month or $100 a year. Get informed at taprootedmonton.ca. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of -of out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear and destruction and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. The series examines the high costs that wildfires cause to people's health, homes, and communities. Find World on Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash worldonfire. Let's move on to the next question then. <laughs> As we're getting a little depressed, but this maybe will be uplifting for folks uh, folks who are interested in this topic. This one's from Nadine Riopel, and she asks, what would it take to get the UCP out of power in the next election? And how soon can we start working on it? Dave, what do you think? How do we uh, how do we turn the tide here? Well, we talked about this a bit a couple episodes ago when we had Zane Velge on, um, and we talked about what I mean. We talked specifically about what the NDP would need to do to defeat the UCP. And I mean, right now, um, I mean, unless another polit- another another political party comes up out of out of the woodwork, um, uh, or you know something happens with the Alberta party, um, which is kind of you know the Alberta party is always waiting for some for something to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's going to be, you know, it, it looks like it'll be the the NDP and the UCP will be the two main contenders for the next election. Now, there's a lot of time between now and the next election, and you know, things can change really quickly. But, but I mean, right now, uh, if if you want to talk about getting the UCP out of power, it looks like the NDP is is the is the alternative. And I mean, they were the previous government, and that's kind of the first time we've had this situation in a number of years where the official opposition is actually the former government. So you actually have people in the opposition benches who were. Um, uh, government ministers and who who in theory could be government ministers again if if their party forms government. So, uh, I mean, a few things that I'm I'm trying to rec- recall what what you know we talked about. And I have a post written about this a, in a draft article written about this that I'm I'm um, I'm going to publish in the next couple of weeks I think um, about what the NDP could do to win. I mean, I think that uh, you know making it a, a campaign about um, the next campaign about. Um, Jason Kenney versus Rachel Notley and making it about those two individuals. I think Rachel Notley, you know, even though the NDP doesn't poll as high, I think Rachel Notley, her pop- popularity, she pulls, uh, pulls much stronger than Jason Kenney. And I think after, uh, after three years of, of, of cuts, I think that she, you know, that, that Jason Kenney's popularity likely won't, you know, might not, uh, might not, not increase. Um, so, uh, um, you know, make it a, a Notley versus Kenney, uh, campaign um, focus on the issue. I mean, focus focus on on the issues that 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 you're strong on. I think that the 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 in terms of the NDP, I think they focused a lot on on pipelines and a lot on oil and gas and trying to appeal to, to people who would never vote for them to begin with. And mm-hmm. they, in a lot of ways, I mean, I think their base showed up to vote for them, but they didn't really give their base a real. I mean, aside from being uh, not Jason Kenney and not the United Conservative Party. They didn't really, you know, they didn't focus on the big things that, you know, their big, uh, big successes. So there was, you know, very little talk of the twenty-five dollar a day childcare program. 
um, during the campaign. And I mean, I think that the, the NDP, I mean, they need, they need to, you know, think, I mean, it's kind of cliche to say this, but think big in terms of, you know, make promises, make, uh, you yeah. know, propose stand for something, stand for something, propose big programs. Don't just necessarily be defined by, uh, by what the government does. And I mean, I, we talked about this before is, is, I mean, it's the challenge of being the opposite official opposition is, you know, the government, you're largely, you know, you you're, you're, you're spending so much of your time reacting to what the government does and you have MLAs and critics within your caucus who want to react to absolutely everything. Right. So, you know, the NDP agriculture critic wants to react to absolutely, absolutely everything that the, that the agriculture and forestry minister does. But like, I mean, maybe that's not the focus of what, you know, I mean, obviously not, obviously they shouldn't ignore agriculture and they shouldn't ignore rural Alberta. Um, and I'm going to talk about rural Alberta in a second. Um, but like maybe agriculture isn't like the NDP's biggest strong point and maybe it shouldn't be their top talking point. Not like it always is, but, but I'm, I'm, that's just, that's just one example I'm using. And the other thing is, is the, the kind of the seed advantage that the UCP has. And this is kind of the, I mean, Rural Alberta, I mean, in the last election, and, you know, we'll see what happens in, in three years, but rural Alberta voted incredibly strongly, uh, had, had an incredible strong turnout for the United Conservative Party. Some, you know, some UCP MLAs just racked up massive margins. Um, so they start out with a huge advantage if they can maintain that, which, I mean, I think that they probably can for most writings. I think that there's some, uh, you know, the NDP do have some opportunities in rural Alberta. They They did... Uh, you know, they do have some strong basis of support. I'm thinking like Banff Kananaskis, for example, where they where they actually increased their and increased their vote total from the from the previous election with even with the boundary redistribution um, ridings like kind of uh, more um, you know, urban ridings like Warrenville, St. Albert, like Fort Saskatchewan, Vegreville, like Strathcona, Sherwood Park, uh, even areas like ridings like Lesser Slave Lake. They have a strong base of support, you know, in the kind of the 30 percent range. Um, so there's room for them to grow. Um, but I mean, uh, one of the challenges that they have is that the NDP has is, you know, they need to get out and nominate good candidates in rural Alberta. I mean, a lot of, you know, I, have, I hear a lot of city folks say, oh, you know, rural Alberta, they deserve this. They, you know, they voted for, for, for the UCP, uh, you know, and they didn't vote for the NDP. I mean, that's such a, that's such a wrongheaded way to look at things. I mean, people vote for, you know, people vote for political parties for, for many different reasons. And it's such a, uh, uh, such a, such a bad take to just, you know, uh, um, say that, you know, that someone that, that certain people deserve this because they voted for a political party that's implementing an, uh, you know, an agenda that might, that, you know, might hurt them. But people, I mean, people vote for political parties for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, when you look at rural Alberta, I mean, just just in terms of can, new candidate recruitment in rural Alberta. I mean, if, you know, if I'm, if I live in, you know, the town of, you know, new, you know, I want to say new gas town, Alberta, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a political moderate. I probably voted conservative in the past, but uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a political, I'm not, I'm not married to a political party, but, you know, the, the UCP is running, um, uh, George down the street who owns the car dealership or the, the mechanic shop who I've known for 20 years and our, our kids go to school together and our, you know, our partners are part of a knitting club or something. And, uh, and he's running for the UCP. And then the NDP have nominated some 19 year old political science student from Edmonton to run. Well, you know, who am I going to vote for? Yeah. You know, you vote for who you know, and it's not, so it's not necessarily about political ideology. I think most Albertans are, politically moderate um, and can be persuaded, you know, persuaded either way. And I mean, I think the NDP are, 
they're they're four years in government proof that they're not you know this is not a group of raging marxists these guys are liberals at you know at their most left yeah. uh and uh, i mean I, there was you know the the what was the the, the phrase i used the the you know the Rachel Notley was the best progressive conservative premier that Alberta has had in had since <laughs> Lockheed. Uh, I mean these you know uh, so you know going out and recruiting recruiting candidates and especially in the rural areas I think it's uh, incredible candidates I think that's a, that's a big part of it so that's kind what of a long winded answer to a short question. No, that's okay. That's good. It's a lot of detail which we need to be thinking about these things early on. Nadine asked a related question, which is. Will the amount of damage that the UCP has done to our public institutions be irreversible by the time we can get them out? What do you think, Dave? I mean, we're they're only we're only what like a year into a year and some months into the UCP's mandate. Well, I mean, I think that that I mean, you know, the UCP has uh, they have a majority government um, and they have a mandate to do, you know, they have a mandate to do basically whatever they want. I mean, you know, the thing we've learned in 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 politics, Canadian politics, is you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you ran on something. You can just impl- if you have a majority, you can implement it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and if they have a majority, well, you know, there's four years unless there's some kind of internal party party reckoning. There's uh, you know, there's four years they have to to implement their agenda. I think that you know they're they're moving at breakneck speed, and they have been since since the since the the day the day that they were sworn in as government. They want to remake the province of Alberta in in, uh, in their kind of conservative. Uh, you know, free market vision. I mean, I've heard conservatives say that they, you know, honestly say with a straight face that they believe Alberta is a socialist state and they want to, you know, liberate Alberta from this, from the, from socialism. And it's just, that's just wild to me. Um, So, I mean, after, you know, yeah, they can do a lot of damage in four years and they'll make a lot of changes um, if they're elected for another term, which is, you know, there's a strong possibility there will be, um, or they could be. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to move forward with this, uh, this kind of, conservative political project this kind of reagan-esque margaret thatcher-esque political project of uh you know letting the letting the free market uh oh you know throwing open the doors to our to our public system yeah well so and it's it's trouble it's troubling it's very it's very troubling and i and, and i mean we, it goes back to the one of the one of the previous questions we talked about about the alberta's revenue problems and i i really don't think that they you know there's some speculation i've heard in some some political chatter about the UCP implementing, uh, you know, savage cuts in the first term, and then by the second term in government, uh, after you know, after um, uh, um, Albertans are used to, or you know, are, are in shock, or still in shock, or just accustomed to the cuts, uh, to then implement a provincial sales tax. But I, I just don't see, in terms of of, of uh, you know, Alberta's long term. Uh, financial stability or fiscal stability. I just don't see any government. I mean, this isn't just a UCP or NDP thing. I mean, it's the, the progressive conservatives beforehand. No one has ever wanted to deal with the with uh, with the 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 revenue problems that this province faces, and we get away with it because you know after you know we we complain about it after a couple of years of of uh, of economic downturn and the, when the price of oil when the price of oil is low we say oh well we can't implement uh, provincial sales tax or we can't implement new taxes now because people can't afford it and then when the you know when the price of oil shoots up again we say oh well, we can't do it now because you know we'll wreck the economy that's doing so well when it has you know largely has nothing to do with us and and everything to do with the international price commodity that we just don't control the price of, of. yeah um you had talked uh, at the beginning of nadine's question about the in with rural or the NDP having strong rural candidates, 
do you think, do you see an opportunity there? Harnur Kochar on Instagram was asking if they have an in with rural municipalities given the recent backlash. But do you think those, the folks in those communities will stick to their sort of conservative political candidates? Well, I think having an in with rural municipal leaders and having an in with rural voters are two separate things, uh, right? I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, you know, if, if this continues and rural municipalities continue to feel like they're being ignored by the, by the UCP government or they're, you know, that they're being penalized um, by the UCP government, then, I mean, yeah, I could see rural politicians, a number, you know, you could, you could see prominent rural politicians running for the NDP uh, in the next election or for an opposition party and not necessarily the NDP, but an opposition party in the next election. Um, will voters follow them? That's, that's another question. I mean, the United Conservative Party is, I mean, they're very well organized on the ground in, in a lot of writings. And, and I mean, also the connection with the federal conservative party. I mean, they're essentially the UCP and the, and the CPC in Alberta are very much the same you know this almost you know the same people it's the same organization i mean it's it's different than it used to be with the when when the progressive conservatives were government the the pcs the progressive provincial progressive conservatives and the federal conservative party or the federal reform well it's different when it was the reform party because there was still the former pre-c party but the the federal conservatives and the provincial progressive conservatives were there were a lot of the same people like in terms of like the on the ground volunteers you know, people who would go door knocking and canvassing. There were a lot of the same people, but in terms of like the leadership of the two parties, they were different, right? Like people who were involved at the leadership, you know, and in, 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 at the Progressive Conservative Party um, weren't necessarily people who were were involved at the same, you know, in the mirror mirror organizations in the Federal Conservative Party. Which, whereas I think with the UCP, there's a lot more blending of that. Like the Venn diagram is like pretty close, pretty like it's almost. An eclipse, yeah, yeah, it's almost full circle with with this. So it's very much is, and that and that, and that was the point was they wanted to, uh, you know, this was very much a, a federal conservative, you know, the merger of the of the Wild Rose and the Progressive Conservative Party was very much a, a federal conservative takeover of of the provincial conservative movement in Alberta, provincial conservative party in Alberta because there had been this kind of um, schism between the two between the dominant federal conservative party and the dominant. Uh, dominant federal conservative party on the provincial and federal levels in Alberta, which, you know, I mean, they're all the same, almost all the same voters, but in terms of the party organizations, you had this huge split between the federal reform party and the provincial progressive conservatives. I mean, a lot of people forget that Ralph Klein campaigned for Bobby Sparrow against Preston Manning when Preston Manning was running in Calgary Southwest in the 1993 election. And like Klein and Manning didn't get along. Like there was a, you know, and, and, you know, they, they, they were, they were from two very different strains of the conservative movement in Alberta. Uh, Manning going back to the social credit era and, and, and Klein, you know, being basically, you know, starting off as a liberal mayor and then becoming a progressive conservative. But um, you know, there, there was, there was, you know, even though their, their voters were a lot, of this, a lot of the same people and their volunteers may have been a lot of the same people, there was a lot of animosity between the two organizations where that just doesn't really exist anymore as far as I can tell. They're the same. I mean, Jason Kenney is the most powerful political, uh, you know, conservative political leader in, in the country, really. And, uh, and I mean, until Aaron O'Toole was chosen last week, he was basically the leader of the conservative movement. And, you know, I think he'll probably take a bit of a step back now and let Aaron O'Toole uh, find his, get his feet. Yeah. All right. Well, our next question comes from, uh, and I may get this last name wrong, but it's Brandy Nadiger Harrop on Twitter, on Facebook, sorry. 
Uh, Brandy asks, any chance of getting the recall legislation that UCP promised us? Or do you think they're too scared to bring it in now that they've <laughs> pissed off so many Albertans? And connected to that was a question from Pamela Heichel, where she asked, why can't we demand an ejection of the current government? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, I'll answer Pamela's question first, because we had an election last year, and one party won. And it was a free and fair election, and a lot of Albertans showed up to vote, and this is who they chose as their government. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, they, they won the election. And I mean, I guess you can demand their ejection, but, you know, they've won a mandate for four years, and they have a majority and a, and, and, uh, and a fairly convincing mandate. So they're, the, you know, the United Conservative Party is the government. Uh, any chance of getting recall legislation? Well, from what I understand, the, the MLA recall legislation was initially originally supposed to be tabled this spring, uh, and then uh, everything was kind of thrown up in the air because of because of the pandemic, so it wasn't introduced. But interestingly, it's it, it's from what I understand, it's expected to be introduced this fall. I mean, they they could move it to the spring depending on what happens in the fall. Um, but it will be the new justice minister, Casey Madhu, who will introduce that, um, introduce that, that MLA recall legislation from, from what I understand. So, um, I believe it's going to be introduced in the fall, but, but, uh, but maybe, uh, I mean, if they think it's going to hurt them, they'll, they'll move it closer to the, uh, probably closer to the next election. So, and we'll see, it's going to be very interesting to see what the details of the details of the, of the recall legislation are. Um, it's something that they've been promised for a number of times. See, recall legislation is something that it comes up again and again in Alberta politics. I think there've been like 11 private members bills in the past 25 years uh, to promote it. And it actually used to be uh, a real platform point of the Liberal Party. So when the Liberals really? under Lawrence Decor um, were the official opposition in the 1990s, there were there were a number of, um, a number of, of uh, uh, private members bills introduced by opposition, ML, Liberal opposition MLAs uh, to implement recall. And then, it slowly became less of, and then that that was back in the '90s when there was there was um, there was a bit more. We talked about Venn diagrams a little earlier. The the Venn diagram was a you know it was a little closer between provincial liberals and federal reform reformers. There was some overlap between provincial liberals and federal reformers in that period, and I, I alluded to just a minute ago uh, the animosity that Klein and Manning had towards each other, and I think that was kind of part of it as well. And I mean the liberals under Lawrence Decor were a very much a more right wing political. Um, political party, especially on the fiscal side, and then on these kind of democracy initiatives, uh, which were kind of which were big in the 1990s. Um, so they were it was the liberals who were kind of championing it, and then come the 2000s, it became more of a Alberta Alliance, Wild Rose Alliance, Wild Rose Party thing. And Paul Hinman, who is now the leader of the Wild Rose Independence Party, the separatist party, the interim leader of the of the new separatist, the newest fringe separatist party in Alberta. Uh, was uh, I think he introduced the, that's uh, recall MLA recall legislation a couple times. That seems to be his kind of uh, his bailiwick um, that he goes and talks at conservative conferences about. But Alberta actually had MLA recall legislation in the 1930s. And w was it used at all, or it was it was it was used. I mean, well, it, it never actually got it never actually got used, but it almost got used against Premier um, William Eberhardt. Uh, so they introduced the legislation. I think they introduced it in 1936, and I may be getting my dates wrong just by like a year or two, but I think they introduced the Social Credit Party. They won the election in 1935. They introduced MLA recall legislation. And I think in 1936, there was a petition in the Okotoks High River riding, which was Eberhardt's riding, 
to recall him. And I think at that point, the threshold for the amount of signatures you need to collect to recall, to trigger a, a by-election to recall in LA was quite high. I think it was around like 66% or something. Um, and they, they, like, they collected that many signatures. People were that, that ticked off at Aberhart. Um, and then instead of actually holding a recall legislation, the government actually just, just removed the legislation. So they implemented a law and then it was used against the premier. And then they just said, okay, well, we're not going to have this anymore. And then they stopped. They just let like, got rid of, they recalled or they recalled the, the recall legislation. So that was Alberta's brief uh, experience with recall legislation. Well, maybe we'll get another one soon. Who knows? It, maybe. And it's going to be, I mean, my prediction will be that there'll be uh, you know, all sorts of recall initiatives being, uh, being, launched against UCP and NDP MLAs in every quarter of the province. It's, uh, it'll, uh, you know, the threshold better be high to trigger this because, you know, overturning elect an election is something that should not be done lightly and it should be very serious. Um, I'm not a huge fan of recall legislation. I think that's why we have elections. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I, I mean, I also think that, that recalls should be something that if we are going to have recall, it should be something that should be used for certain only initiated for certain specific reasons and i think you they think they have similar legislation in, in the united kingdom so for example if a member of parliament is in in the uk is charged i think they're convicted convicted with a crime or they're uh you know they've been absent for you know a year or something like that like there's there's two or three or three or four kind of different basically reasons why you can use a recall you can use recall legislation i don't think that um just because they've done something that's unpopular that, that uh, some, some people find unpopular um, you should recall an MLA. I think that, you know, we elect individuals who, uh, you know, ostensibly are there to represent us in, uh, in, in, uh, in provincial legislatures, in our, in our parliamentary system. And, and I think this, this, uh, this undermines it. I mean, the other thing is, and I mean, I, I apologize for, for going on and on about this, but we give indiv individual MLAs have like such little wiggle room, such little room to actually, you know, uh, in, in independence from their party leadership and from the, 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 the party leadership in terms of the party and in terms of the leader, uh, yeah. that giving Albertans opportunity to punish individual MLAs when they may step out of line or, or when they, when they don't have an opportunity to step out of line, um, because of the, the authority that the leader's office and the party has over them. Uh, I think this is really the wrong way to approach it. I think we should be talking about giving MLAs more, uh, more independence and more freedom rather than, giving up giving voters more opportunities to punish politicians i think that's kind of the wrong way to look at democratic reform yeah yeah i know that's that's a fair comment um but it's going to be something i guess we'll be talking about for a little while anyway because it's part yeah. of what the ucp wants to do so here's our next question from derek bolianitz on facebook derek asks where did the four billion dollars go and what's the real story behind crude by rail I, I'm not sure exactly what the $4 billion represents, Dave. Are you, do you know what Derek is referring to here? Well, I think he's referring to the, I mean, there's a story that came out right around the, it, it was kind of the side story that came out right around the fiscal, the fiscal update debate. And I saw, um, who was it that commented? One of, one of the, uh, the uh, Blake, Blake Schaefer commented on this from the, from the University of Calgary. Um, I think he was the one who kind of pointed it out in the budget documents was the, the province's $2.5 billion loss um, for getting out of the crude by rail contracts that the NDP, um, that the NDP government um, purchased for, I think, one, 
1.5 billion dollars. I may be getting all my numbers wrong, but from what I understand, it 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 it, it ends up being like a, a a huge amount of money, and um, the UCP is blaming the NDP, and the NDP is blaming the UCP. Um, the blame is probably somewhere in the middle. I think that uh, I think Blake Schaefer's comment was that the problem, one of the big problems, was that there the lack of transparency on both sides, lack of transparency on the on the side of what what the NDP did when they purchased this crude by rail contract. And you have to remember that this was during the, you know, the height of the height of well, the latest height of the of the big pipeline debates where. Um, where there wasn't, I think at one point that there was there was like nothing flowing through nothing flowing through pipelines or something like that, um, uh, and and the government purchased basically purchased a contract to uh, to move um, move oil by rail to the coasts um, for export, and then the UCP promised to get Alberta out of that contract. Well, it looks like we probably got hosed on both ends. So you know the NDP got hosed when they bought the contract, and then the UCP got hosed when they had to buy themselves out of the contract. Um, the lack of transparency seems to be a big issue, and it is very concerning. I mean, it's very concerning because because it's a heck of a lot of money, um, but it also raises concerns about transparency around other deals that the government is making. Um, I'm thinking about the Keystone XL, the 7.5 billion billion um, committed to Keystone XL that we talked about earlier. Um, so overall, it seems like it's a it's a transparency issue. This is a lot of money floating around, um, but it's not quite clear why Albertans. I mean, it, it seems that Albertans got hosed. Yeah, well, yeah. I guess that's the real story behind the crude by rail. <laughs> Thanks for your question, Derek. Our next one is from uh, Ryan Hassman, friend of the pod on Twitter. He asks, how did you guys get to be so handsome? I don't know, Dave. Do you not answer oh, well, that one? Well, well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Ryan, for the question. Um, it's a, uh, a you know a detailed morning regimen of uh, of combing my hair and brushing my teeth, and it's just it's just natural. <laughs> yeah, and I'll uh, I'll add that I sometimes trim my beard as I need to do that. Yes, it looks it looks quite fetch right now. It's uh it's very. Is that the right term? Is that the... I think so. From <laughs> a couple decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thanks for your question, Ryan. Uh, Lost and Curious on Twitter asks, uh, or says, and then asks, in Alberta's fiscal update, Travis Taves mentioned examining the revenue side of things, which is very new for the UCP. What do you think this means? Higher fees and personal income tax or a sales tax? Well, I mean... Governments always say that they're. Gonna, I mean, conservative governments or Alberta governments always say that they're going to examine the revenue side at some point in the future. You know, I remember being at a campaign rally in the 2015 election, and it was just, this was a progressive conservative campaign rally at the I think it was like the White Mud Community League Center in Southwest Edmonton, and this was Steve Mandel's riding when he was a progressive conservative MLA. He was running for re-election. And they had like a mid, it was like an after, uh, a rally on a Wednesday afternoon uh, and Jim Prentice came and his big bus rolled up and they had this community hall packed. And it was a, it was a, there were a lot of people there. It was a packed event, especially for like a Wednesday afternoon. It was, you know, it was, there were, there were quite a few people. Um, but I remember the, the one moment that really sticks out to me was when they were asking the, uh, they were doing a scrum, um, taking questions from the media after Prentice had done his speech and after Mandel had got up and talked and they highlighted, highlighted the candidates. Um, Prentice was taking questions from, from the, from the reporters. And I think it was Dean Bennett from Canadian press who asked this question um, because this is right when the price of oil had just fell through the floor. Um, people were talking about royalty reviews and reviewing the royalty rates again. 
um, as we perennial, perennially do in this province. And so, so Dean Bennett had asked, or the reporter had asked, you know, are, will you, you know, will you commit to reviewing royalties in the future? Because I think the, I think Rachel Notley and the NDP had talked about that. Um, Reese had that was one of the talking points that week, and Prentice said that he had committed. It was I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the the word, but it was a very it was it was such a progressive conservative answer. It was like we commit to some point in the future, perhaps um, in you know maybe investigating uh, reviewing royalties, <laughs> and, and it was just like the most non-committal. Uh, they just like really, really didn't want. He really, really didn't want to talk about this. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that really just that summed it up. That really summed up for me the kind of attitude that uh, the the approach that um, that many conservative politicians take towards dealing with uh, with the revenue side of of uh, of the the um, of the government's budget. Uh, you know, I don't think that. I think higher fees. I think they'll probably, you know, in terms of the UCP. I think introducing some more service fees is probably likely. I think they're going to go heavy on privatization. Um, I, you know, there's always whispers of a sales tax, but I just, you know, maybe in their second term. But I just don't see that. I think that uh, Jason Kenney has been very clear again and again that, uh, you know, that he doesn't support it. Doesn't support a sales tax. That it would, uh, and actually by law and this law that. Premier Kenny likes to brag about him having a part in a hand in writing when he was the the spokesperson person for the the Alberta Taxpayers Association in the early '90s. There's the you know law that's on the books in Alberta. I mean, laws can be taken off the books as our old um, deficit law was when Alberta started running a deficit in the 2000s. Um, but uh, there's a law that says that I think it's called the, I think it's called the Taxpayers Protection Act. There has to be a referendum if the government wants to implement uh, a, a PST, a provincial sales tax. And, and now that law also says that if they want to implement a, car, implement a car, carbon tax, uh, there has to be a uh, has to be a referendum. But I mean, it's so that, I mean it's for show. But um, and governments can remove those types of of laws pretty easily if you have a majority. Um, but uh, uh, I think it would be very hard for it would take a number of years of setting up. Um, getting Albertans prepared for it because despite all the problems that we had that are very clear in front of us in this province um there's just no support for provincial sales tax in terms of the broad population like it's just people don't want it it's you know we're Alberta no you know the was it no rats no liberals and no PST you know so <laughs> I I think that if if it was something that any government was serious about implementing they couldn't campaign on it because they wouldn't win mm -hmm. And just about the only people who could probably get away with it are is the United Conservative Party. If they well, this is just like Nixon goes to China kind of thing. Yeah, only, yeah. only Jason Kenney can you know only Jason Kenney can implement a provincial sales tax, and maybe, yeah, maybe. maybe. But but uh, I just I you know I just don't I don't see it anytime soon. Um, even you know, though, it, even though it could help solve quite a few, not all problems, but quite a few problems in Alberta, it, it could absolutely it could could solve some problems, and it's something that every other problem, literally every other province in the country does. I mean, it's one of the things that's like stunning that always gets me is every year when the provincial budget is released, and we saw this with the fiscal update that was released last week. There's always a chart somewhere in the budget documents that shows how you know how much more in taxes everywhere every other province of the country pays right so and, and it's like a bragging point so and, and it and it's it's uh, i think i pointed this out when joe cc was finance minister uh, under the ndp is is at the same time as alberta is is you know we're, we're we're complaining about deficits uh we're also bragging about how 
you know, how little revenue we have, how little, how little taxes people pay. So it's like this like cognitive dissonance thing that, uh, you know, yes, we were running these massive deficits and, and, you know, and everything is, everything is horrible, but also look, we're also, you know, not paying as much tax, as many taxes as, uh, as everywhere else in the country. And, you know, implementing, you know, just a simple 5% provincial sales tax would, I mean, it wouldn't solve our problems. There's, you know, there's, there's some deeper systematic problems we have to face, but um, like it would, it would go a long way to, to pushing us in that direction. And like, and like, I mean, Alberta is not going to implode if we implement a provincial sales no. tax. It would ease some of our suffering, at least in the short term. We still have, we have still have big moves on the revenue side to make, but, uh, anyway, thank yeah. you for your question. Thanks uh, for the question. Curious. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This next one is from Matt Schneider on Twitter. Matt asks, what's up with the special prosecutor and guest investigation of the kamikaze campaign will we ever see anything from it or did kenny successfully put it behind him will we ever learn the name of this prosecutor uh i so this is the the investigation that's going back to the allegations the you know i mean there's two there's from what i understand there's so there's there's two at least two investigations going on from or how, that, that are related to the United Conservative Party leadership race in 2017, and I mean, the, you know, the longer this goes on, the further this gets away in people's memories. But so one of them has to do with the investigation that the former elections commissioner was was uh, conducting. Now the chief elections officer is conducting it um, because the elections commissioner office was dissolved. Um, so there's that. And I think that one has to do with uh, with finance side of things. So that has to do with um, with donations. And we see we kind of see it, it trickle out every couple of months. There's a um, the elections commissioner or the elect chief elections officer releases a new name or two of people who've you know they're getting five thousand or twenty thousand dollar fines um, because of they've donated more or they they donated over the limits or they uh, you know there was they donated in a way that they weren't supposed to. They violated Alberta's election Alberta's they broke Alberta's election um, election finance laws. Then there's this other investigation. This is the one I understand. This is, or maybe there's three investigations. And then there's the RCMP investigation. So from what I understand, that's the special, the one the special prosecutor is involved in. Now, if I'm wrong about this, then, because there's a bit of like, you know, it's a bit of, I think it's like a bit of 3D chess going on. Um, you know, listeners, please let me know. But from what I understand, our special prosecutor was appointed from Ontario. And this is not uncommon when... Um, when provincial governments uh, have to investigate or put in a position where they have to investigate things that are politically sensitive or close to the minister uh, or the government. And I mean, in this case, Doug Schweitzer, who was actually a candidate for the UCP leadership, um, uh, obviously had, obviously there, there would have been a, a many perceived conflicts of interest um, for him being directly involved in this. So a special prosecutor was, was, was appointed. I believe they were prosecuted from, or they were appointed from someone from Ontario and I don't believe their name was ever released, but I don't necessarily think that's common um, for the, for the name to be released. Cause I think they're more, it's more of a bureaucratic position, but I don't know. I mean, presumably we'll see something about it at some point if the investigation is ongoing. I've, I mean, I assume the invest investigation is ongoing and we'll, you know, we'll hear, we tend to hear, we hear stuff periodically from the chief elections officer. Um, the last I'd heard, the RCMP investigation was still ongoing in terms, in, in um, connection to the allegations of voter fraud. Uh, so, I mean, I guess we'll hear, we'll hear it at some point. I think that 
the further we, this the further away this gets the less politically damaging it uh, it is yeah um because it's just something that i mean at some point it's you know it's going to be 2027 and we're going to be hearing the results of the special investigator prosecutor's investigation and you know so much has gone under the you know under yeah. the, there's so much water i mean i don't say water under the bridge but so much time has passed that it's kind of at the back it's it's kind of becomes kind of an obscure thing in terms of of politics i mean if if people broke the law and broke the rules yes there there should be consequences and people should be held to account absolutely and i think that's why this i mean that's why this special prosecutor was important was a was uh was appointed yeah and, and like you said by 2027 uh President Kenny of the Republic of Canada will be leading things, and it won't matter anyway. For President Rosenhart of the uh, <laughs> the uh, People's Republic of Edmonton. <laughs> oh, what a shithole country that would be! <laughs> All right. Well, our last question is from our one of our favorite askers, and that is Mountain Ted. Hey, this, Mountain Ted. <laughs> this sort of goes back maybe to the the cabinet question from before, it's a, but it's a bit of more of a long term outlook. Mountain Ted wants to know how safe is Tyler Shandro's job? What are the chances that he's still health minister come next election? And why why would he still be or not be health minister by the next election? Oh, I think his job is very safe um, because he's doing exactly what, he, as I said earlier, he's doing doing exactly what he's been tasked to do. Um, I mean, there's also the other. I mean, the other element of you know the the one of the key characteristics of this government is you know never apologize. Uh, never admit you're wrong and never apologize and then deflect, 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 right? It's like everything is going back. You know, you take every, you flip everything around, every criticism around and you, and you use it as an opportunity to, to attack your opposition. And uh, I mean, I think Tyler Shandro, uh, his position is, as health minister, you know, I think, you know, if he's, if, if, if he's not the health minister, when the next election is called, he'll be the health minister uh, unless there's a massive scandal um, of some, some other variety uh, I think he'll be health minister until the next election or until very close to the next election if they if they have a uh, cabinet shuffle before the next election. Now, that's not uncommon for governments to to shuffle around their cabinet before uh, before an election, especially if certain cabinet ministers aren't running for re-election. Um, this isn't always the case, but in a lot of cases, governments will will, um, you know, in the in the, the months or the year before the election, if the, you know, the last minister, if they're planning on seeking re-election, and if they're not there, in, in many cases, they're kind of shuffled to the back benches for their last few months. And that gives the opportunity for the government to, uh, you know, to bring new blood and, uh, and you know, kind of re rejig things before an election and, and put, a, put a new face on some ministries. So, you know, if he's not, if, he, if that doesn't happen, I, I, you know, I think that uh, he'll be the health minister come the next election. I can hear I can hear our listeners sighing with yes. but, uh, but that's the way it goes. Well, I mean, maybe he'll be recalled. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I presumably we're going to have this recall election before the next before the next provincial election. So yeah, you know who knows? It's a uh, it's a uh, it's a circus in Alberta politics. Interesting times in Alberta politics, as it always is. Yes. Uh, thanks to everyone for their questions. This was a uh, it was really fun, Dave, to get you to answer some of these. Yeah, this is this is really fun. Um, I really I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed the question. So th thanks everyone for sending your questions and and I think we'll be uh, returning to a more uh, more regular schedule with guests coming up this September. So we're we're quite excited. We got a few uh, few fun guests lined up for for uh, more of our going back to our regular episodes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know one thing we didn't get to talk about is that uh, you know we took the summer off because it's good to take a little bit of time off. But Dave and his wife also had a second baby. Yes, we did. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Yeah, we uh, we welcomed our our second son, 
uh, into this world uh, in August, and uh, we've mostly been. I mean, you know, it's not like it's COVID time, so it's not like really, really have anywhere to go. But uh, but we've mostly been hunkered at home. Uh, uh, baby and mom are are doing very well. Uh, I'll send a send a huge thanks out to the nurses and doctors at the Lois Hole Hospital for Women at the Royal Alexandra Hospital here in Edmonton. They were they were excellent. They they took very good care of uh, of uh, of uh, of son and mother, and uh, and then uh, you know tolerated me uh, while uh, <laughs> while they were there. Um, so uh, um, we're re very appreciative of the uh, of the of the nurses, doctors on on three e, the three east unit of uh, of the Lowell School Hospital, and uh, and yeah, so that's been most that's been mostly mostly my summer. So it's yeah. uh, it's kind of a nice summer to uh, to do that because it's not uh, it's no one really has many travel plans, so we're just we're just easing in easing in it at home and. Uh, and uh, and I'm watching watching Alberta politics uh, from from that vantage point. A few of your favorite things. Yes, exactly. So that that's it for this episode. Uh, thanks again to Adam, uh, our producer Adam Rosenhardt, for for making this podcast sound so good and and being the the questioner, the inquisitor in this uh, in this episode. <laughs> Happy to help, man. Um, the Dayberta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Uh, send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. And we would love it if you could leave a review where you listen to the podcast. So if you listen on Apple or, or whatever, wherever you download that you can leave a review, um, we, we like the five stars. So thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. <laughs>